Spencer Tracy didn't really drink during his rise from stock theater companies to Broadway in the 1920s. After some ups and downs, he landed a role in George M. Cohan's Yellow in 1926. Cohan was one of the American theater's most important figures, having written standards like Over There, Give My Regards to Broadway, You're a Grand Old Flag. The movie Yankee Doodle Dandy was based on his life. He proclaimed that a nervous Tracy was one of the best goddamn actors he'd ever seen. By 1930, Tracy was appearing in some of Broadway's biggest hits and earning rave reviews. But the actor had a wife and a son, deaf and suffering the aftereffects of polio. With the depression on the way, the stage didn't pay enough, and so, against his own and his wife Louise's better instincts, he gave up the stage and took a contract with Fox Film Corporation. Struggling with the social obligations of Hollywood and appearing in films that he hated, he took up drinking. Though his filmography came to include some of Golden Age Hollywood's best and most interesting movies, his alcoholism, legendary even in a town where hard drinking was not unheard of, would define his off-screen life, as much as would his relationship with the woman he called Kath. This is Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. This episode, Spencer Tracy, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. By the mid-1930s, Spencer and his wife had a second child, cementing his need for a movie star salary, and he'd appeared in a blend of bad movies that didn't make much money and good movies like 20,000 Years in Sing Sing and The Power and the Glory that also mostly didn't make much money. He just didn't have a breakout success. During the filming of that second movie, Spencer disappeared for days. He later crashed his car across the street from the Hacienda Arms Apartments, known then as the House of Francis for Madame Lee Francis, proprietor of the high-end brothel. He may have been a regular customer, a possible fact only disputed by those who argue that Spence was so busy with so many women that he didn't have time to frequent a brothel. So in 1933, he moved into an apartment away from his wife and kids. Later in the year, he publicly disclosed a separation from his wife. Perhaps living apart for a while will lead to a reunion, he told the press. It didn't. Not in any meaningful way. He met actress and fellow devout Catholic Loretta Young on the set of box office bomb Man's Castle. Legend has it that she asked for a quarter for her swear jar after hearing him whisper, damn, on set. Pulling out his wallet, he handed her a bill and said, Here's 20, sister. Go fuck yourself. The two began an affair that eventually became very public. He even gave interviews about it. For Spence, his time with the 13 years younger and far more glamorous Loretta didn't boost his ego, but instead egged on his insecurities. His Catholic faith, always in the background and the reason why he would never divorce his wife, also meant that the affair nagged his conscience. Not enough to stop him, but it nagged his conscience. He even at times considered his son's ill health and deafness a result of his own inadequacies and sin. Somehow sex workers and affairs were... Uh, maybe not okay, but more acceptable than ending his marriage, which... Okay. 
sure. But so he drank even more. Young finally called off the relationship following a run-in with her priest, and Spence went on a multi-week drinking binge that saw him in the hospital and his contract suspended. In March 1935, he was arrested in Yuma for trashing a hotel room, and his contract with Fox was ended. The details there are hazy, and it's hard to understand exactly why, but MGM was ready to swipe him up. The studio seemed to know exactly what they wanted to do with Spencer Tracy and how to utilize him in ways that Fox hadn't. Rebuilding his damaged career from the ground up. He starred in Fritz Lang's Fury, a box office hit about a lynch mob hunting an innocent man, and he had major supporting roles in San Francisco, which earned him an Oscar nomination in 1937, Captain's Courageous, for which he won Best Actor in 1938, and then he won again Best Actor in 1939 for playing Father Flanagan in Boys Town. is real. It is a drama greater than the imagination of Hollywood's best storytellers. 4,000 boys have passed through this city of little men. And now the drama, the laughter, the heartache and the triumph of all these boys is crystallized in the story of one young renegade who came from the back streets into conflict with the one man who could save him. I'm Father Flanagan. I saw your brother Joe just a little while ago. We had a long talk about you, Whitey. Joe wants you to come to Boys Town with me. If you think you're gonna make a plow jockey out of me, you got another thing coming. Now look, Whitey, in a pinch, I can be tougher than you are, and I guess maybe this is the pinch. You're coming with me to Boys Town because that's the way your brother wants it. Spence's style here stands out, particularly in the 1930s and into the 40s. He was giving grounded, subtle, naturalistic performances at a time when bigger was better. Yes, Your Honor. Pardon me, but does it really matter? It was a free-for-all. Any one of them could have done it. What do you mean, Father? Well, not to obstruct justice, even if I could, but one boy threw that stone, did this special damage. But he didn't mean to do it. They were all throwing things. They were all excited. Well, I'm trying to reduce it to a definite charge. That's what I was afraid of, Your Honor. None of us want to abuse children. But we do, nevertheless. The business of the court is to take care of the honest citizen. No, I have a high regard for you, but... Your Honor, these boys were arrested this morning. It's now, it's, it's 3.30. Has anybody come forward to say one good word for them? Father, mother, uncle, sister, anybody? Well, you're saying quite a few. And I'll go on until you take back the privilege you've granted me. He could stay sober for long periods of time, but like many alcoholics, one drink was all it would ever take, and MGM even had a hotline for local bartenders to call if he got too wild. He had high-profile affairs with Joan Crawford and Ingrid Bergman before signing on to the movie Woman of the Year in 1942, as a leading man opposite the actress with whom he'd forever be associated, Katharine Hepburn. Metro-Golden-Mayer, the producers of the Philadelphia story, have made another equally brilliant entertainment. Just as you recall with pleasure unforgettable moments from that celebrated production, so we believe you will remember with chuckling delight many scenes between Spencer Tracy as Sam, the sports reporter, and Katherine Hepburn as Tess, the highbrow political writer. For instance... Don't you understand what I mean, Tess? I want to marry you. Anything happening? Planet. Great. It was a quick wedding, so the bride could get back to her career. No one will ever believe we were married sober. Something intimate between husband and wife. What would you think about having a child? Tess, is that what all this build-up has been for? 
Did you think I'd have to be sold on the idea? Well, I wasn't quite sure. I thought perhaps I'd better get you into the right frame of mind. Get me into the right... Me? Well, the sooner the better. It's already been done. In that movie, she's a brash, well-educated, somewhat hoity international affairs correspondent, and he's a down-to-earth sports writer. As in the movie, he wasn't particularly taken with her, not right off the bat, but the two quickly softened to each other. Her old family, New England, transatlantic charm seemed to pair well somehow with his earthier style. She was sturdy and self-confident while he was far more brittle, but... Neither seem to have a problem calling bullshit on the other, and great relationships have been forged from far less. Though the two didn't move in together, and the relationship was never made public, not by Spence, in the ways in which his previous affairs had been, the two were in a deeply committed relationship, and a passionate one, by the time Woman of the Year came out. Or so the story goes. We can't go much further without addressing the long-standing rumors that Spencer Tracy was something other than entirely straight. The relationship between Hepburn and Tracy, or Kath and Spence as they called each other, has been the subject of speculation for 80 plus years since they met in the run-up to the filming of that movie in 1941. There are two main camps here. The mainstream view, which Hepburn herself bolstered in her memoirs, is that the two were in a very long-term, very committed, tempestuous, and presumably sexual relationship that would have been public but for the very Catholic Tracy's marriage. The other camp says that Hepburn was pretty clearly a lesbian, Spencer was something like bisexual, and that the two were close friends, something more like siblings who cared for each other deeply even when the sailing wasn't smooth. As with most things involving sexuality or gender, I'm inclined to think there are always more than two choices, and that the truth here may well be a secret third thing, but let's break it down a little bit. And to do so, we'll have to talk about Scotty Bowers, author of the 2012 memoir Full Service and subject of a subsequent 2017 documentary, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Scotty was a Marine during World War II and came home to take a job at the Richfield Oil Gas Station at 5777 Hollywood Boulevard in 1946. According to Scotty, customer and actor Walter Pigeon gave him 20 bucks for sex, which was real money in those days. He began tricking himself out to men and women and soon sort of stumbled into a career as a procurer. Prolific set decorator Edwin D. Willis and celebrity hairstylist Sidney Gwilleroff began helping Scotty to arrange connections between customers, often celebrities, and the tricks, who were sometimes Scotty's former marine buddies. They would hang out at the gas station hoping to make some extra money. Before long, he was connecting around 20 guys a night. A friend left a trailer behind the gas station that was used, and a friend owned a cheap hotel across the street. A bathroom stall had a small hole for viewing what was going on in the adjoining stall, so Scotty could make money on both sides of the hole. By all accounts, though, he wasn't greedy, and in later years, many of his former tricks publicly expressed gratitude for the opportunities he provided them to make extra money. He was also, and later, a popular bartender at Hollywood parties, well-known by many Hollywood greats. Jack Kimberling, one of Scotty's tricks, who later became a trial lawyer, said that Scotty was... So well organized in those days, if he'd been in the business world, he would have ended up as chairman of General Motors. Scotty's memoir laid all of this bare, sometimes in salacious detail. Of course, plenty of people immediately cast doubt on Scotty's stories of trysts involving the likes of Cary Grant, Randolph Scott, Charles Lawton, Vivian Lee, Cole Porter, Montgomery Clift. The list goes on and on. Now, I spent a lot of time digging into Scotty's books and his claims before talking about this, and Honestly, it's really hard to prove any of it one way or another. But his book was pretty carefully vetted before publication, as well as was the documentary about his life. 
A lot of former associates, including Trix, many of whom went on to successful careers in more mainstream professions, came forward to vouch for specific aspects of Scotty's book, as well as for his general character. Anyone's story is subjective, and there's no way to know if Scotty was at all prone to exaggeration, but I think there's more reason to trust his version of Hollywood's golden age than to doubt it. It's also the case that we tend to put a much higher burden of proof on gay stuff than on straight stuff. So if these were stories of affairs between straight people, I don't know that there'd be the same level of scrutiny. I'm also not really moved by the idea that we mustn't discuss such things out of respect. We'll happily discuss every aspect of the lives of our favorite stars, including straight affairs, without much of a sense of the salacious at all. Maybe we should generally have more respect for the privacy of even dead celebrities, but until we decide that no private aspect of a star's life is worth discussing, I'm going to say that gay stuff is on the table. Anyway... Hepburn biographer William J. Mann dived into Hepburn's sexuality in earnest in his 2006 biography, finding it eh, complicated. Her closest relationships throughout her life were with women, most of them gay or bisexual. Her early preference for being called Jimmy and wearing pants and cropping her hair at a time when both were seen as scandalous might have been traditional tomboyishness. Or evidence of a more complex relationship with gender. When she died in 2003, she was buried next to her longtime companion and assistant, Phyllis Wilborn, which again might be evidence of a romantic relationship, or of a very firm friendship, or a secret third thing. Again, it's complicated. Spence certainly had affairs with numerous women, but according to Scotty and others, including playwright and activist Larry Kramer, he and Tracy had a sexual relationship, and the relationship between Hepburn and Tracy was all for show, a relationship of convenience. Their screen chemistry made it an appealing match in spite of Spencer's marriage, and that very aspect of it might indeed have given it a doomed aspect that people might have appreciated. What did it give them? I mean, for Kate, a passionate relationship with a male co-star would have been typical Hollywood and taken some of the emphasis off of her unconventional life and what were seen by many as excessively mannish ways. If she was also involved in queer relationships, it might certainly have distracted from that as well. Despite her reputation for forthrightness, Hepburn was a master at managing her own image. In the early 1930s, her somewhat gender-fluid screen presence had made her a star, but tastes changed throughout the decade, and the same things that made her famous had her branded box office poison later in the decade. So she stepped away from movies for a bit, backing the Philip Berry play The Philadelphia Story that he had written for her. The touring play was a hit, and Hepburn got the money to buy the film rights from her pal Howard Hughes. And she then turned around and sold the rights to MGM for cheap, with the provision that she have a level of creative control and veto power over producer, director, screenwriter, and cast. All unheard of. The resulting movie, co-starring James Stewart and Cary Grant, kicks off with the tough, no-nonsense, independent Hepburn of old before her character, Tracy Lord, discovered that she really does kind of need a man. Oh, Dext. I'm such an unholy mess of a girl. Well, that's no good. That's not even conversation. But never in my life. Not if I live to be a hundred will I ever forget how you tried to stand me on my feet again today. Oh, you? You're in great shape. Oh. Tell me, what did you think of my wedding present? It's a very funny and delightful movie in spite of that, and also provides a fascinating contrast between the Hepburn who deliberately softened her image on screen, while also exerting an unheard level of control behind the scenes. 
control she maintained in several subsequent pictures, including Woman of the Year. In that film as well, you get to fantasize about this woman leading a tough, independent, empowered life, only for her to find true love with a take-charge man at the end. For audiences, I'd guess, it was a way of eating their cake and having it too, it being the comfortable reinforcing of the status quo. Okay, the point of all that being, she was more than capable of doing what she needed to do to maximize the potential of her public image. And by all accounts, there was some truth in it. Spence was one of those few people who could comfortably stand up to her, and she seemed to appreciate that. Whether we see that, as many doubtless have, as a real-life reflection of their movie roles in which the strong woman just desperately needs a man, or simply as a function of any headstrong person who might value the ability of people who will call bullshit on them once in a while, it's all in the eye of the beholder. People will say, why does all this matter? And, you know, it's interesting. It's maybe a little juicy. If we're going to talk about the stars at all, which we clearly do, then relationships of any kind are clearly a part of that. It's more broadly important, though, the sheer plausibility of the story that two of Hollywood's biggest stars concocted a long-term sexual relationship in order to obscure general queerness. And it does seem entirely plausible to me, and many others, makes a case that it's worth talking about. Now that we've dissected their relationship at length, and if we're being honest, not come to any particular conclusion, let's go back to Spence. He had a number of successes throughout the 40s, several of them with Hepburn, and he returned to the stage in 1945 for Garson Kanan's production of The Rugged Path by Robert E. Sherwood. It was a troubled but relatively successful production, though Spence found that Broadway didn't appeal to him as it once had, saying, I couldn't say those goddamn lines over and over again every night. At least every day is a new day for me in films. But this thing, every day, every day, over and over again. But during these years, he was a firmly established star. And his biggest hit to the time was still ahead and came in 1950 when he played opposite Joan Bennett and Elizabeth Taylor in Father of the Bride. I would like to say a few words about weddings. I've just been through one. Not my own, my daughter's. Someday in the far future, I may be able to remember it with tender indulgence, but not now. I always used to think that marriage was a simple affair. Boy and girl meet, they fall in love, get married. They have babies, eventually the babies grow up, meet other babies, and they fall in love and get married, so on and on and on. Looked at that way, it's not only simple, it's downright monotonous. Which also earned him another Oscar nomination and generated a sequel that was also successful. In 1956, he received a nomination for John Sturge's Bad Day at Black Rock, a movie that dealt with discrimination against Japanese Americans during World War II and after. It was the kind of movie that he'd become known for in that last stage of his career quality, thoughtful films that had things to say about social issues that Golden Age Hollywood had largely avoided. Which takes us straight to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, in which Joanna Drayton, played by Catherine Houghton, who was Hepburn's niece, gets engaged to black doctor John Prentice, played by Sidney Poitier. Joanna's parents are wealthy liberals forced to confront their own latent racism, while John's parents disapprove even more strongly.
starring Academy Award winner Spencer Tracy, Academy Award winner Sidney Poitier, Academy Award winner Katherine Hepburn. Introducing Katherine Houghton. Three Academy Award winners and a bright young newcomer combine their talents in a love story of today. I haven't even told you his name. <laughs> Mom, it, it's John Wade Prentice. Isn't that a lovely name? John Wayne. Joanna Prentice, I'll be. What the hell is going on here? I love your daughter. There is nothing I wouldn't do to try to keep her as happy as she was the day I met her. But it seems to me, without your approval, we will make no sense at all. That is why I'm asking for the clearest possible statement of what your attitude is going to be. I appreciate that, Doctor. It's uh, almost in the form of an ultimatum. Not quite, Mr. Drayton. All you have to say is goodbye. Character actor Roy Glenn played Dr. Prentice's father, while legendary actress, author, and activist Bea Richards was his mother. The no-nonsense maid, Tilly, is played by Isabel Sanford in her screen debut. The part earned Sanford the attention of producer Norman Lear, who cast her in her best-remembered role, that of Wheezy Jefferson in All in the Family and then the Jeffersons. So, stepping back to 1961, Tracy had received an Academy Award nomination for his role in Judgment at Nuremberg, losing to his co-star in that film, Maximilian Schell. Two years later, he led the very fun all-star farce It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, one of my favorites. He was only 63 when that film came out, but given decades of heavy drinking, his health was in rapid decline. He collapsed from pulmonary edema in 1963. In 1965, prostate surgery left him critically ill. And Hepburn, just a few years younger herself, stepped away from the stage and screen entirely to care for him pretty much full-time. And when the two ultimately decided to do one last film together, it was probably clear to everyone that it would indeed be his last film. He was suffering from heart disease, high blood pressure, and diabetes. But Tracy and Hepburn were so keen on the project that they signed on before even receiving a full script. It helped that Stanley Kramer, who would direct the film, had directed Tracy three times previously, and each of those films had been widely critically acclaimed. Kramer approached Spence initially, not knowing that Hepburn would consider working again. Spence initially begged off, but then Kath jumped in. Spence, you should make this picture. And then surprised both of them by adding, And I'll play your wife. He grumbled and said, But I get tired, you know. To which Kramer responded, You won't get tired. I'll send you home every day at one in the afternoon. I'll fix it so the studio will never know. Spencer said, well, okay. At which point Kate was grinning and clapping her hands silently behind his back. Abby Mann, a producer who'd worked with Kramer on earlier pictures, recalled a peculiar interaction with Hepburn. She had spotted him walking down Santa Monica Boulevard and honked at him, asking him to get into her car for a chat. After making some small talk about one of his recent pictures, she said, 
I'm very, very worried about Spence. He really, really is worried about dying. I come from a doctor's family, and dying doesn't mean anything to me, but Spence is really frantic about it. He thinks he's going to die. So ill was Tracy, in fact, that insurance companies refused to cover him for the film. To get around that, Hepburn and Kramer each put their own salaries in escrow to cover the costs of hiring a replacement actor should that become necessary. It was unconventional, but it sold the right people and they were allowed to move forward. Director Kramer was already known at this point for his message films and for his liberal sensibilities. Among other topics, he tackled racism in 1958's The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier, uh, science literacy in Inherit the Wind, also with Spencer Tracy, and the dangers of fascism in Judgment at Nuremberg. He received the first ever NAACP Vanguard Award in 1998 in recognition of, quote, the strong social themes that ran through his body of work. And in 2002, the year after his death, the Producers Guild of America inaugurated the Stanley Kramer Award for films that, quote, illuminate provocative social issues. The point being, Kramer's social issue bona fides were solid. Screenwriter William Rose was best known for his British comedies, most notably The Lady Killers, and had received three Academy Award nominations of his own, so this was all-star behind the scenes as well. In January of 1967, when production on the film commenced, 18 states had and enforced laws against marriage between whites and non-whites. Except for a very narrow 1964 Florida case about an interracial couple convicted for living together, the Supreme Court hadn't touched issues of anti-miscegenation since 1883, when it affirmed that such laws were just A-OK. Just nine years before Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was to be made, a Gallup poll, one that probably undersampled black people, had found that 94% of Americans disapproved of interracial marriage. 94%. When former President Harry S. Truman was asked, in 1963, if he thought interracial marriage would become widespread, he answered, quote, I hope not. I don't believe in it. Would you want your daughter to marry a Negro? She won't love anyone who isn't her color. Which, okay, Harry. Uh, great. <laughs> Thanks. It's real nice. So that's the climate into which this film was being made, and it gives you some sense of the sensibilities of all involved that they were anxious to make it, even given Spence's rapidly failing health. He wasn't particularly outspoken about politics during his lifetime, but the string of liberal-minded social issue movies he made during the last great era of his career, as well as his association with Hepburn, offer up some clues as to his mindset. Back in the 1920s and 30s, the Catholic Church as an organization and individual priests were instrumental in creating the self-censorship guidelines that eventually became the Hays Code, a set of guidelines that forbid nudity, profanity, interracial and same-sex relationships, any negative references to clergy. And the rules also made it tough for women to do anything particularly interesting, among m many other prohibitions. Because of Spence's outspoken Catholicism during that era in which the church was closely associated with movie censorship, it's assumed that he was of the same mindset... Maybe? Maybe not. Um, if that's true, and that's a big if, he might have been one of those rare cases where someone gets more liberal as they age. And I'd guess Kate had something to do with that as well. In addition to Kath and Spence, Sidney Poitier was a huge get here as well, and he agreed at least in part on the strength of their involvement. He was hot already, but 
on the cusp of one of the best years that any screen actor has ever had. In 1958, he'd been the first black actor nominated for a Best Actor Oscar for Stanley Kramer's The Defiant Ones. In 1963, he was the first winner for Lilies of the Field. He'd had some reasonable successes after that with A Patch of Blue and Duel at Diablo, but 1967 would absolutely be his year. To Sir With Love was released in June, followed by In the Heat of the Night in August. And then guess who's coming to dinner in December? Each one a bigger box office smash than the previous. Though he didn't get any more Oscar nominations out of any of those movies, two of them, Heat and Dinner, would compete for Best Picture. It's also the year that saw Poitier's reputation come under the microscope, and guess who's coming to dinner is as good an example of why as you'll find. Kramer and Rose specifically designed Dr. Prentice to debunk stereotypes. He's a doctor from a top school. He does medical work in Africa. He's forthright in his convictions, but polite. He refused to have sex with Joanna before they get married. He leaves money on the table when he makes a long-distance phone call from the family's house. It's all clearly well-intentioned. The character is designed to break down the resistance of white audiences. After all, if you and Harry Truman couldn't accept this stunningly handsome, educated, polite, but not weak or deferential doctor marrying your daughter, um, you would maybe have to consider that the problem is you? <laughs> and Poitier's great strength is that he's able to humanize these types of roles but they also set an impossibly high bar for black Americans, most of whom couldn't be reasonably expected to meet Dr. Prentice's qualifications. Like, not, like nobody could, really. The, I believe, unintentional message was that a black person might be acceptable, but only if he's literally flawless. Catherine Houghton, who plays Joey Drayton, Dr. Prentice's fiancé, later said, Anybody who's ever been involved in an interracial marriage of any sort, or even a gay relationship, any kind of relationship that's not approved of, that movie became a metaphor for those kinds of situations. I don't think it did a thing for civil rights. It was a movie for white people. She's absolutely correct, and there's nothing really wrong with that, especially when the message is, hey fellow whites, don't be so racist. Nothing really wrong with it until you look around and realize that there are plenty of white-centered stories about race, but far fewer black people being asked to tell their stories. And that was the rap on Poitier from many at the time, and, and to this day. The biggest black movie star the world had ever known was starring exclusively in movies for white people. But Poitier later said, quote, How possible was it then? in 1967 to make a film like that, in America. It was close to impossible. Primarily because the industry was not ready for such a film, so it took a guy, Stanley Kramer, who said, I would like to make a film like this. Not because it's going to be sensational, not because it's going to be provocative, but because I'm a filmmaker in America, and this is part of America, and if I use this format, I could speak to the humanity and people. So he sent me a script, I read it, and I thought it was a wonderful idea. Terrific idea for the time. Five decades later, Jordan Peele wrote, directed, and produced Get Out, with a nearly identical setup. A white woman takes home her black boyfriend to meet her liberal parents. In that movie, they're all too eager to accept Daniel Kaluuya's Chris Washington, with the movie quickly revealing itself to be a horror movie, albeit a 
satirical one dealing with race and racism in a post-Obama America. It feels very much like a movie that's having a conversation with Guess Who? And they make a really interesting double feature. You got your toothbrush? Check. Do you have your deodorant? Check. Do you have your cozy clothes? Got that. What? Do they know I'm black? Should they? You might wanna, you know? Mom and Dad, my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend. I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man. <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before, bro. Peel said, one of the lessons I took from Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which is one of the influences here, is that one of the reasons that film was so effective in its discussion with race is because it started with a situation that was universal. Take the race out of it, everybody can relate to the fear of meeting your potential in-laws for the first time. At some point, I had a revelation that that was also the way to get into it. By which he, of course, meant get out. From... My own vantage point, that is the vantage point of a white person who was not born when Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came out. One of the more interesting aspects of the film is the relationship between and the attitudes of the elder Draytons. A lot of people who haven't seen the movie assume it's about a couple of old bigots, but they're not that, not really. And actively anti-racist in many ways, as when Hepburn's character fires a woman who works for her because of a racist comment. But darling, what you must be going through... He was trying not to worry about it. Oh. Now, I have some instructions for you. I want you to go straight back to the gallery. Start your motor. When you get to the gallery, tell Jennifer that she will be looking after things temporarily. She's to give me a ring if there's anything she can't deal with herself. Then go into the office and make out a check for cash for the sum of $5,000. Then carefully, but carefully, Hillary, remove absolutely everything that might subsequently remind me that you had ever been there, including that yellow thing with the blue bulbs which you have such an affection for. Then take the check for $5,000, which I feel you deserve, and get permanently lost. It's not that I don't want to know you, Hillary, although I don't. It's just that I'm afraid we're not really the sort of people that you can afford to be associated with. Don't speak, Hillary. Just go. Particularly in the case of Spencer Tracy's Matt, he's a liberal who hasn't taken his ideas off the shelf for a very long time. Here, he's forced to confront not only his daughter's pending marriage, but... He's forced to examine his own ideals in the harsh light of day. It's something that speaks to me in my own life. I encounter people all the time who either grow less open-minded as they get older, or who sort of stagnate. I'm thinking of the people who have black friends, but who think that movies with too many black and brown characters are woke. Um, I'm thinking of the people who think gay people are fine, but that trans people are weird and icky. Um, the lesson of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, to me anyway, is that being an open-minded and progressive person means constantly learning and expanding, not just locking ourselves into whatever ideas we had when we were 20 and then refusing to ever budge from there, because nothing, what, what could ever possibly change? If nothing else, it keeps you from being surprised, as the Draytons are, to find out that they're not quite the people they thought they were or that they might wish to be. Okay, back to the film itself. Spence's workload was kept to a minimum, and Kramer even used a double for some of the over-shoulder type shots that didn't require the actor's face. Kramer described Spence's behavior on the film as, as typically teasing and curmudgeonly, um, at one point sort of feigning fury at the director for not naming his newborn daughter Spencer, and 
mocking Kate for some of the tricks she would do to hide her face lines from the camera. But for the most part, uh, it was a fairly easy shoot by all accounts. So everything builds to the movie's climax when Matt changes his mind about his objections to the marriage. As for you two and the problems you're going to have, they seem almost unimaginable. But you'll have no problem with me. And I think that uh, when Christina and I and your mother have some time to work on him, you'll have no problem with your father, John. But you do know, I'm sure you know, what you're up against. There'll be a hundred million people right here in this country who will be shocked and offended and appalled at the two of you. And the two of you will just have to ride that out. Maybe every day for the rest of your lives. You can try to ignore those people or you can feel sorry for them and for their prejudices and their bigotry and their blind hatreds and stupid fears. But for necessary, you'll just have to cling tight to each other and say, screw all those people. Kramer said, It's a very contrived scene, but walking in the garden and changing his mind, Spence carries the entire picture with him. He does it with his face. Who else but Spencer Tracy could have accomplished that with his face? That scene was shot over three days in order to not wear the actor out. Kramer described a key moment when Matt turns to Dr. Prentice and says, You have to get married, because if you love her the way I love her... He was looking directly at Kate, who burst into tears. As did Spence, as did Kramer. When the scene was completed, the actor told Kramer, You know, I read the script again last night. And if I were to die on the way home tonight, you can still release what you've got. He did finish, and though he was too tired to attend the rap party, he called friends from home saying, I finished it. By God, I finished it. That was May 26th. On June 10th at 6 a.m., his housekeeper found him dead, alone, reportedly of a heart attack. The details aren't necessarily important, but there's a, there's a bit of a mystery. There was no autopsy and no further investigation, but Kate said very specifically in later years that he died at 3 a.m. It's led people to speculate that she knew the exact time of his death precisely because she was there at the time, though the official reports have her not showing up at the house until 11, after Spence's brother and then his wife Louise and their two children. Kate didn't attend the funeral. Though his acting reputation remains that of an all-American everyman, a closer look at Spencer Tracy reveals more. He could be gentle and kind. Whatever the exact nature of his relationship with Hepburn, his long association with one of Hollywood's smartest, toughest, and most free-spirited performers, paints him in a good light, I think. His place at the heart of probably Hollywood's greatest love story, whether it's true or not, has elevated his reputation even beyond 
what he deserves for performances in films like Fury and Bad Day at Black Rock, Libeled Lady, Woman of the Year, Inherit the Wind, Judgment of Nuremberg. The list goes on and on. Despite his middle American appeal, he appeared in some of the most strident and thoughtful social issue movies of his time, many of which hold up to this day. He could also be a womanizer, particularly in his younger years, bordering on the cruel and abusive. The extent of his alcoholism was legendary, even in a time and place where hard drinking was hardly unheard of. The closest thing to a clear picture of Spencer as a person comes when he's reflected in the lives of those he touched. The tempestuous but close bond with Hepburn, his four-decade-plus marriage to a woman he was actually with for fewer than a decade, his guilt-ridden public affair with Loretta Young, his more private one with Scotty Bowers. So where does that leave us on Spencer's legacy? It's hard to feel that his reputation isn't largely subsumed within that of Catherine Hepburn's. She lived far longer and is an altogether bigger personality. Despite a number of massive critical and box office hits in his own right, the nine films he made with Kath are among his best remembered. Hers remains a household name, while his has faded a bit with time, and I wonder if his reputation is bigger or smaller for being in her shadow. I almost have the sense that he'd be okay if it were, given his ambivalent relationship with the limelight and his frequently derisive comments about his own profession. To writer and director Garson Kanan, he said, Why do actors think they're so goddamn important? They're not. Acting is not an important job in the scheme of things. Plumbing is. Spencer might have been happier as a plumber, and he almost certainly would have been happier as a stage actor, at least if he'd stayed with it. But we'd certainly miss his films and the underappreciated impact that his very naturalistic style had on American movie acting. And like a lot of actors, Spence's legacy was also largely written by the filmmakers behind the movies he starred in. Father of the Bride became an unlikely franchise with five feature films and a short, uh, with another movie in the works. On March 7, 1965, peaceful civil rights marchers crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, and were brutally attacked by state troopers. It came to be called Bloody Sunday. For people watching ABC, the news coverage interrupted the first airing of Judgment at Nuremberg, with the actors Judge Dan Hayward speaking about Nazi atrocities, of crimes so vast as to stagger the imagination committed by ordinary individuals, and of the value of a single human life. That reflection of more current events was noted. And guess who's coming to dinner's timing is fascinating. On June 12th, just two days after Spence's death, the U.S. Supreme Court, under Justice Earl Warren, unanimously struck down anti-miscegenation laws with Loving v. Arizona. When Guess Who was released, just in time for Christmas of that year, it must have felt like a victory lap. It was the fourth-highest-grossing film of 1967, though it didn't do quite as well as the third-highest-grossing film. A re-release of Gone with the Wind. Do with that what you will. This has been Swan Songs, Last Acts in Legendary Lives. The show was written, produced, and edited by me, Ross Johnson, 
and I also created the incidental music. Joseph Barsha was Spencer Tracy and Jack Kimberling. Sarah Williams was Catherine Houghton. And Michael Willick was Stanley Kramer. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating and reviewing on your podcatcher of choice. It's the best way to help the show grow. You can also get more information and sources at swansongspod.com or swansongspod on Instagram. We'll be back soon with more swan songs. If all of the leaders of the Third Reich had been sadistic monsters and maniacs, then these events would have no more moral significance than an earthquake or any other natural catastrophe. But this trial has shown that under a national crisis, ordinary, even able and extraordinary men can delude themselves into the commission of crimes so vast and heinous that they beggar the imagination. No one who has sat through the trial can ever forget them. Men sterilized because of political belief, a mockery made of friendship and faith, the murder of children. How easily it can happen.